everyone. Welcome to Food Talk, the podcast. Today, I get to talk to one of my heroes, Paul Hawken, the founder of The Drawdown Project. We talk about his role as an environmentalist, why semantics and how we talk about environmental issues matters, and his belief that changing the way we produce and consume food can help reverse climate change. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierenberg. Today, I I really get a tremendous honor. I get to talk to environmental legend, activist, and author, Paul Hawken. He has dedicated his life to environmental sustainability and changing the relationship between business and the environment. He's one of those people who's really impossible to introduce, so I'm going to do my best, but it, it will not give him justice. He is the founder of Project Drawdown, a project that maps how to scale 100 substantive technological, social, and ecological solutions to global warming. He has written several books, including the book Drawdown, as well as The Next Economy and The Ecology of Commerce, among others. Project Drawdown gathers and facilitates a broad coalition of researchers, scientists, students, policymakers, business leaders, and activists to assemble the best available information on climate solutions in order to describe their beneficial financial, social, and environmental impact over the next couple of decades. Uh, Drawdown is so hopeful and, and focuses on what's possible, which is what I love. And it highlights, among other things, the role of food and agriculture, and not only contributing to climate change, but also uh, food and agriculture's ability to mitigate and even reverse the effects of climate change. Uh, Paul has had a long history in environmental and social justice. He worked as the press coordinator, I didn't know this until recently, for Martin Luther King's staff in Alabama, and he has been a mentor to many of us over the years. Paul has uh, occasionally been emailing me uh, since Food Tank was founded in 2013, giving advice about how, how I and Food Tank should really address climate change issues. And about a month ago, he he sort of called me out of the blue, and it was one of the highlights of my career, Paul. I remember getting very sort of befuddled on that call because I was nervous. So I, I'm so honored to have you. Um, you're you're truly um, one of my heroes. Um, so I, I just want to thank you. Do you, do you want to add anything to your bio? Did I miss anything really important? Well, it's funny. After uh, all these years, sometimes I forget my own bio myself and somebody says I did something and said, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Martin Luther King thing was the March on Montgomery. And I I, I mentioned it only because it was Martin Luther King Day yesterday, and um, and at that time uh, in Montgomery, it was in Selma, Alabama, actually, but mm-hmm. Selma, Alabama, it was just I, I was. It sounds so strange, but I was so grateful to see division and hate uh, up front, up close, sure. and see the shadow of humanity. Mm. And um, and also the gift that the shadow holds because, you know, transformation comes from that yep. sense of fear and reaction and it doesn't come from anything else. And um, so I, it, it, it really came to my mind yesterday, you know, just feel how divided this country has become again, you know, and uh, on many polarizing issues. And one of them should not be climate change and global warming that's for sure absolutely absolutely i i couldn't agree more and i want to get into that in a few minutes with you but 
I, I don't think you've had a chance to listen to the podcast. I ask everyone the same question sort of first. And um, it, it's this. It's what's your favorite food memory? You've had an opportunity to work uh, in the environmental sustainability movement for a long time. I'm sure you've had some great meals, some great potlucks, <laughs> because our people do that, but also some probably some bad meals on the road. Is, is there a particular movie or sorry, is there a particular food uh-huh. that stands out for you? <laughs> I, um, gosh, what a good question. I think probably the one meal that stands out was that when I was 24, I lived in Japan, I lived in Kyoto. And uh, Japanese cuisine is quite extraordinary. I don't think people fully understand it because it's sort of dumbed down further west uh, here. Uh, and the ingredients aren't here either, all the ingredients that are necessary. But anyway... Uh, a student friend of mine um, took me to a temple, uh, a Zen temple that prepared vegan food, mm-hmm. of course, but um, but you would never, ever, ever know it. It was so skillfully done, so uh, it, it, <laughs> it makes impossible foods and all those things look like kindergarten. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I mean, there was pork cutlets and there was... You know, chicken, and there was, you know, this, I, I mean, just so many things, and it was all made from vegetables, and, you know, developed over a thousand years, really, the, there, there's schools of cooking in Japan, and one of them is samurai cooking in a helmet, which is skiaki, one of them is imperial cooking, which is, that's where sashimi and sushi came from, but one of them is Zen Ryori, called Zen cooking, and Zen Ryori has this extraordinary ability to use all sorts of different plants and tastes and flavors and extracts and so forth to create tastes which are we just don't get in this country Absolutely. so I've never, yeah no that's something i've been thinking of a lot about lately i i leave uh, uh for a trip to melbourne this week and and one of the panels that i'm moderating at a at a conference there is sort of uh, on this idea of, of conviviality and, and creating better food spaces for people to have community. And I think because we don't always appreciate the taste and the flavors from, from food that, that gets lost and we're all in such a hurry. So that mm-hmm. ability to sort of savor things is, is one that I'm very interested in um, and always have been, but particularly interested in uh, at this moment. Um, you know, you, you've obviously had this long career Career and social justice, you know, but how, how did, what attracted you to environmental issues and really, you know, dedicating your career to environmental sustainability? I think partly being a, a native Californian fifth generation and, and having letters and photographs and anecdotes and experiences of the, um, the transformation of California, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's a kind word. And, um, but the, you know, going from, I don't know what the population was when I was born, but it's nearly 40 million today. And, and just seeing how places that I had visited as a child or knew were being developed or destroyed or paved or parking lotted or shopping centers and, and, um, and, and just, I think, and then growing up in the Sierra Club, because this is the home of the Sierra Club. And we were members when I was a child. You know, Sierra Club was like boater bags full of wine and, you know, rocks and climbing. Sure. Everybody had a good time, really. Yeah. <laughs> and 
you know, learning to repel when you're nine years old and stuff like that. But, but I met David Brower, who um, oh, really, yeah, you know, Sierra Club from, a, you know, kind of a, a weekend, you know, uh, organization to a very powerful uh, environmental organization and, and um, happened to lose its, you know, 501c3 status along the way, too, because it was so um, politically directed. But I think that really had a big influence on me. And the second big influence on me was um, actually having asthma. I was the youngest case of asthma um, in San Mateo County. And, um, and I had it until I was 20. And, um, and I was taking lots of aminophilin and ephedrine. They didn't have steroids then, thank God, um, just to breathe. Even though I, and I played athletics in high school and stuff like that, but I, I mean, I had to take this stuff all the time in order to breathe. And if I didn't, I would start to turn purple. Oh, and when I was 20 years old, I, I read a book that said, you know, basically, if you are sick, it's your fault. And I was so mad because I had it from six months old, you know, I said, that's not my fault. Right. <laughs> and um, but there's something about that that gave me a real sense of possibility. Is you know it's my fault? Okay. So, and so I went on a I fasted for ten days, ate rice and green tea for ten days. Uh, in other words, eliminated everything I was eating except kept keeping enough rice in me to keep you know functioning. And the asthma went away for the first time since I was six months old. Wow. And, and that to me was a stunner, you know, I think, sure. oh, wait a minute, the best doctors in the world, you know, at, were treating me with pills and saying it was incurable and or I would grow out of it. That was the other thing. Maybe you'll grow out of it. And and it was that quick and that simple. And I then became fascinated with food. I'd grown up on a farm uh, in part with my grandfather's farm. So I knew food and gardens and all that sort of stuff, but I never understood the relationship between food and health until then. And then I just spent, you know, the next seven years just going at it. I started Air One in Boston, and now it's a store in L.A. Sorry about that. I'm so sorry. No. Um, yeah. Um, and, um, and, and you know, in seven years, I had, I think, 35, 6,000 acres uh, under contract uh, wow. organic grown food in the United States in 37, uh, 37 states. And and I learned so much. I mean, I had to grow up on a farm. I knew a bit about farming, but I learned a lot more from all these farmers and learned a lot about just the food system mm-hmm. that we're happening. And I think I, I think I was that was a low point, maybe 1966, you know, was like. The, the the high point in food like substances in Michael Pollan's word, but the low point in terms of human health and and what we thought food was. And so I was just loved participating in that sort of awakening, mm. you know, or organic food, but not just because it was born organically, but it was how it was packaged or not packaged at all, for that matter, how it was prepared, um, you know, what we were eating, not just you know, um, the, the, not just the, the farm method, everything together. And, uh, and that's continuing to this day. And, and food tank is an, is an extraordinary embodiment of that. And so I, and it just makes me happy and grin. You, you were abashed when I called, well, I'm just grinning when I get food tank email. So <laughs> thanks. I, I, I very much feel like I'm standing on the shoulder of giants because people like you really built, um, 
you know, made it possible for organizations like Food Tank and so many others to do this work because you created that awareness. And so I thank you. And you mentioned this great word awakening. And I think that's such a powerful and, and positive word when, when you were describing the awakening, you know, you saw in, in sort of the organic movement. But I, I think with, with Drawdown as both a book and as this sort of project it you've also are awakening people and and I want you to talk about if you can how drawdown is more than just you know this very inspirational book it's also a, a global movement now and and can you talk about how that came about sure the book it came about because for 13 14 years I've been asking people why didn't we have that book that, you know, and NGOs and institutions and universities? Like, I just want to know what the top 100 solutions are mm-hmm. uh, that are practical, hands-on, you know, that we're doing and we know how to do them, that are scaling. I'm not, not, you know, wannabes or silver bullets or, you know, fantasies, but, you know, what we can actually do right now. And everybody said it was a good idea, but, you know, no one said, Everyone said they also they don't do that. That's they didn't have that capability, resource capability, and and I certainly didn't. And I think it was really we're in one of those periods again. But there was a when Bill McKibben wrote that piece, "Global Warming: Terrifying New Math" in Rolling Stone in 2013, and there was a wave of despair that that you know sort of washed sure. over friends and activists, you know, which is kind of like it's game over, and and that. And I thought about that, and and sometimes game over is is interesting. And uh, I, I I'm not an a a a you know an a a person, or I've never been part of it, but I do know a lot about it, and friends who are, and and oftentimes you know whether whatever the substance that one is addicted to, or subjected to, people who are addicted. But the thing is, is that point in time when you give up and you surrender is actually a transformation, and. I felt like game over actually sounded to me like the beginning of game on. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's, you know, there was take it and look at the other side of it, which is that when you give up, then there's an openness and, you know, surrender. Sure. And um, so I decided to, to do that. Um, and I can't say myself because I couldn't do it myself. And so the only way that we could map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions was to. Um, gather a coalition, a collaboration of people. And we wanted to do it. I wanted to do it from people all over the world because I, I didn't want somebody to think that I knew anything. Mm. I, 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 there is a sense of, excuse me to my own gender and, you sure. know, genetics, but I mean, <laughs> there's a thing that charismatic white male vertebrates have the answer. And that's just <laughs> bullshit, you know? And if they had the answer, we wouldn't be in this doo-doo right now. And so I wanted to avoid that, you know, in organizing Project Rawdown so that, you know, the board, the staff, you know, the research fellows, the senior fellows, the advisors, you know, uh, were uh, diverse and from all over the world. And we worked together to do this, Mm -hmm. you know, and obviously staff people had a, you know, more, you know, full time, actually overtime role. But. But the fact is, uh, we listened, and we listened right. to each other. And you know, groups are smarter than individuals, and uh, and so that's how Drawdown came about. So, on conversely, or on the other side of that, is that um, a Drawdown um, organizations and Drawdown, um, I want to call them movements, but just 
have started all over the world. Drawdown, um, the, the Drawdown European hub. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Drawdown Netherlands. There's Drawdown, you know, in Australia. There's Drawdown Bendigo. There's different Drawdown groups there. There's Drawdown Switzerland. There's Drawdown uh, cities. There's Drawdown Toronto. Drawdown Nova Scotia. Drawdown, and it goes on and on. But sure. I mean, and we haven't organized this. Uh, Daniel, I mean, and and I didn't want to organize it because yeah. as soon as you organize it, you're the head of it. Then you got to have a meeting. And then you got to make rules. Right. And, and so, what I wanted to create an organization whose sole purpose was to give, share, uh, generate, uh, offer. Uh, you know, all roads led out of it, not into it. In other words, Absolutely. and I, and so that's how it. It and, and I still believe that, and I also believe that. And maybe you'll help me on this one, and maybe the listeners will. But I want to start the interorganizational panel on climate solutions. <laughs> mm, I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah, not not needy, not the UN, you know. But I mean, it's fine, UN too. But they're an organization. But I'm just saying is that again, not top down, you know, so that you know Berkeley, okay, it can have the interorganizational panel on climate solutions. Sure. So can Baltimore. So can Botswana. Yeah. So can Bendigo. So can you know, Belgium. So it doesn't matter. You know, it's like whatever scale people want to address this. They want to do mm-hmm. something. They want to feel empowered. They want to feel effective. And the best way to do that is to get together and share what everyone knows, best practices and, and see that generate. And so I feel like that's what drawdown, drawdown can be the source of the data because sure. that's what we we have five million, millions and millions of data points, and so people can rely upon it, but they can also change it and localize it, but at the same time share it. And I think that's really what we need, you know, is want to come together and fix this. I, I agree, and that's one of the things that you know I, why I'm attracted to it because it, it's a platform, it's a it's a it's a, a way to sort of jump off and do your own thing. Uh, on these issues and it, because it focuses on solutions. Yeah, we need the data. We need more information about the problems, but what really motivates people is the hope and, and that's in the solutions and that's in sharing information across, you know, geographic and cultural and, you know, age borders and everything in between. So that's, that's what really excites me about the, the work that you're doing. And I also know, you know, you to talk about you're, you're working on drawdown 2.0 now at this point and, and what will that mean and what will that look like for, for all of these people who are interested in the solutions? Well, 2.0 is, really in response to all the emails and letters and, you know, that we got to draw down 1.0, which, um, and so it definitely has updated solutions for sure. The data has changed in some cases, the, I mean, it's changed radically. For example, when we, we got much criticized by the Sierra Club, (laughs) including nuclear, but, but, you know, as a solution, but we have, we want to be bias free. You know, mm-hmm. what I personally about nuclear is that it's the stupidest way in the world to boil water. I can't think of a more idiotic way, but that's, that's, if we put our biases into the work, then our objectivity would be in question, rightly so. And so we, we did model nuclear, for example, and it's here. It's doing it. It's, it's 11% of our electricity is from nuclear right now, you know, so we can't ignore it. But like one of the things that's really happened is China is turning away from nuclear. And for really interesting reasons, they don't have enough water inland, and the coast is so heavily populated that uh-huh. after Fukushima, nobody is politically impossible to build a nuclear power plant right. on the coast of China, and they need water, right? So it's so interesting. So that's just an example 
and and then in EV and storage and 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 wind, I mean the the the, pro- the progress has been tremendous uh, in those areas. And I could go on. And food, there's been so much movement on food right. waste. I mean, incredible what's going on there. So anyway, we want to update it, update the data and so forth. But what I want to include is actually policies, the mm-hmm. 50 most substantive policies, and then with longer disquisitions in the website that go on and on and so forth. I want to include, I want to tie it into the sustainable development goals. Nice. I want to uh, tie, get it tied into agencies so people can see what they can do given where they are. I am a school supervisor, I'm mm-hmm. a student, I'm um, you know, a parent, I'm a you know, an engineer at a company, I'm a this, so, so people can see their entry point um, and uh, in terms of agency. I want to tell more stories like uh, Butank, like Topher White, Rainforest Connection, like uh, John Wick, the Marine Carbon right. Project. Tell stories where individuals have just, they're doing it. You know, they're on it rather than this is what happens if you do it and this is a right. scale. Let's talk to the scalers. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, when you and I spoke about a month ago, we we talked about the, the, the important role of storytelling. And I, you know, it's those stories that motivate people for sure, but it's something that they can relate to because they see themselves often in those stories. That That's powerful to you, right? Very powerful. The, but Drawdown is all about narrative, really. And and the, the what I tried to do in, in I mean, uh, Catherine Wilkinson and I wrote it, but but in editing it and actually just both of us thinking about what we were going to write about and how we we're going to write about it, mm-hmm. you know, there's very clear for all of us. One, we didn't blame. We didn't shame. Right. We didn't demonize. Okay. Next, we didn't invoke fear and threat and doom. In other words, we didn't light up the amygdala. We, it, it's not a fear-based book. We honor the science, no question about it, and we can – it's obvious why the science, you know, uh, in a sense, uh, dr- brings up fear for people. We get that. And we're, we're not, de- you know, decrying that so much as saying it's not a good communication place to come from. Right, and, right. You know, fear doesn't work. And um, so so that's one thing. The second thing is to really, uh, we had, you know, we had about almost 70, not quite, you know, researchers who did basically theses on each solution, you know, and, and, and we taught them to model and we used a, you know, a vector analysis model and so forth. So they all are interacting. But we took that information and then we wrote the solutions up, but not from an advocacy point of view. Uh-huh. In other words, we didn't say, you should do this and you should do this and you should do this and this is the top things, the 10 things you can do and all. It just felt like, no, we created spaciousness where people could come in and read it, no matter what they think or believe mm-hmm. or believe and so forth, and they could learn something. And it'd be fascinating, you know, that the first solar panel went up in 1884 in New York wow. City. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, who knew? <laughs> and, and, you know, just things that, you know, make you feel like you're more informed about right. the world. Uh, and and there's stories, you know, the man who stopped the desert, you know, I mean, there's a story, the, the, the story of Humboldt's discovery or really you know, description of, of of global warming and climate change in 1831 when he came out of uh, Russia. It's just like, oh, you know, and Eunice Foote, the, the woman who actually first discovered and described, you know, the mechanism whereby CO2 carbonic acid is a warming gas, you know, who 
didn't get credit for it, as so many women didn't at that right. time, you know. Uh, John Tyndall did three years later. But um, but just so, so that you start to feel like, I want to be in this room, you know. I don't uh-huh. want to be in this party. I want to be in right. this competition rather than, you know, you're screwed if you don't do this. Exactly. Or yeah. Hey everyone, Steve Ray Morris here, producer of Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg. Wanted to jump in with a little announcement. Join us for a live Food Talk in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill in the Rayburn Building on May 10th. And we also have another event at New York City at NYU on May 14th. We will also be hosting events in partnership with Mother Jones on May 29th in San Francisco and June 5th in Los Angeles. These will all be announced soon enough with more cities and dates. Tickets are already announced first and are free to attend for Food Tank members. Become a member of Food Tank now at foodtank.com join. See you there. No, and you said a couple of things that, you know, you talked about the Sierra Club and how it was a good time. You've talked about, you know, making this more of a party, like the solutions that we're trying to get people to, you know, adopt and make part of their own lives. This idea of not blaming or demonizing folks or using fear. But so much of the environmental movement in, in my from my perspective is about creating sort of this oh we have to blame those people over there for doing this we have to you know instill fear i mean i think there's a difference between sort of the urgency that i i I feel and i know that you feel and fear how do you how do you make this fun how do you you know how do you tell people they're not losing something that they're gaining something well i mean fear that occupies your mind i mean blaming occupies your mind you know um, you start to literally blame people, right. you know, think about it and then you react and then you see, oh, they just got away with it again. Or sure. you know, my lawsuit is moving through the courts. That's great. You know, but or it didn't get moved or it got turned down and this and that. So you're in that adversarial uh, position with the world. The thing that makes you happy is to do something that's actually do it. Let's just do it. It, take, it takes away mm-hmm. from what needs to be done. And well, um, I just want to say that's the best piece of advice that you've given me. And one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received is, you know, you encouraged me not to say, hey, this is a battle against climate change. There are, you know, it, semantics matter. And I think this is a particular one, you know, that you pointed out to me that that really matters. So please continue, though, I, because I think this idea of making what we're doing um you know, again, not that it's about fear, but about, you know, improving things, about making sure that we're all in it together. Those are really important things to point out. Yeah, I mean, like Wendell Berry said, you know, I mean, you know, be, uh, what's it, be joyous, what is it, be, be joyous even though, though even though you know the truth, you know? Right, right. I mean, so you can know the science and the truth and where we stand. You say, got it. Thank you. Got it. Now, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You know? And the thing about fighting or combating or, you know, using war metaphors, you know, against climate change has several problems. First of all, it's not scientific because sure. you can't fight change, you know, I mean, because climate is change. That's what climate is. <laughs> it's not fixed. It's still already changing. But much more importantly than that is that we have a fear-based system. This whole country, politics, everything's based on fear. But fear is the dis-ease, which is that fear comes from seeing yourself as separate, as an individual, mm-hmm. and that you have to basically survive in this world and do better, get more, and, you know, 
And it is the cause of global warming. It is not the cure. Right. In other words, that sense of separation, which is, you know, spoken in the language and you're fighting, combating, you know, you know, the, you know, all those, those types of tackling, you hear that one, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to tackle it, you know, it's like, really? And, um, it, then it's the same mindset that created the problem. And the mindset that is going to cure and solve the problem is doing what my friend Amanda Ravenhill said, which is holding hands and collaborating, because that's what carbon does. We're talking about carbon, and we're always using these negative terms about carbon, but carbon is amazing. It's like the most, the the you know, it really does. It's the most convivial, you know. Right. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, let's have a party. And it does, you know, and then you can eat it, and then you can poop, and it goes into the water, and then, it, you know, if it's done properly, you know, it feeds, you know, algae and algae or feed fish and fish go this way and feed other. I mean, you know, it's just like carbon is so convivial and, and, um, and, and sometimes it can stay in one place for a long time, like coal and diamonds. But the point being is that we have to, we have to learn from nature and act like nature Mm -hmm. as to acting like people, like we know. And the thing about the book we also tried to do is we didn't try to be right. We're like we're not saying we're revolutionary, yeah. No, because then you make somebody wrong. And so I wrote in the book. I said nothing in this book is right. No model is right, but some models are useful. Absolutely. Make that distinction, you know. Instead of, you know, crowing that we know and here, you know, come on, come on aboard. We know something you don't. Mm -hmm. It's not at all. We're reflecting back to the world what it knows and is doing. That's what that's our that's our role is to be a really clear mirror to the world to see what it can't see when it's overwhelmed by media that is basically wallowing in bad news right. and note that the way to get click throughs is to light up your amygdala. And that's true, you know. And um, but that's not the way to solve the problem. Absolutely. You mentioned this idea of, you know, thinking like nature and acting like nature. I think that's especially important when we're thinking about how to help mitigate uh, climate change through the food system. Can you talk about maybe a few examples that you you mentioned food waste before and and preventing food waste, but what are some other examples that you think, you know, might really help our listeners understand the connections between food and climate change? Well, what surprised us when we went into this and trying to, you know, analyze the model, what are the top solutions? And I think we would have written down, you know, solar, wind and electric cars and, you know, the top three and we would have been wrong. Um, and eight of the top 20 solutions are directly food related. Mm-hmm. And, food. and I think that surprised us. We thought some of them would be. We didn't think eight of them would be. And um, I think the IPCC and they're, they're slowly coming around, you know, to including right. <laughs> food. And a long, uh, long time I to know, get there. <laughs> a long time. Um, and so the number three solution is food waste. It would be higher than that if we could model methane emissions sure. from landfill food and green waste. And we can't because we just don't have the data. And so... Being number three, it's very conservative. It's just about the cost 
of uh, you know, the input in terms of emissions to the food that actually disappears and is never consumed. Mm-hmm. And goes on the farm side, the production side, you know, and the waste side. And um, so that's number three. The number four is a plant-rich diet. And as we saw in the news yesterday, the day before, you know, scientists have come out with the climate diet. Well, shoot, we've known about that for a long time. Right. <laughs> took scientists to discover it was saying, congratulations, you guys, you finally figured it out. But I mean, basically, it's a plant-rich diet and with very low levels of of either no meat or some meat, but very low levels of meat consumption and uh, and dairy as well. And it doesn't, plant-rich diet in our model doesn't ban those things. It's your choice to be vegan, vegetarian, or omnivore, but but it but it it just talks about reducing our protein content to about 50 60 grams a day from 95 to 100 and uh, which is common in the West and then also really substituting the a lot of the meat proteins for high quality plant-based proteins and so that is a number four solution uh, and I, I think the the you know and then that relates to number three by the way because, if you change your diet, then what you're wasting or not wasting is different as well and Absolutely. so forth. So they, that's what I mean about vector analysis. You have to model solutions interactively. You can't model them in silos. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, the data is punk. Uh, and, so, um, and we do that. Very conservative again about how much people will change in the next 30 years because what we did is we scale these solutions. They're all scaling, but like food waste and plant rich they're all scaling. But we scaled them, you know, in a rigorous but reasonable way up to 2050 and say, okay, well, this is the impact it would have if we continue to scale at this reasonable rate. Um, and, and our purpose, uh, Daniel, was to see, could we achieve drawdown by 2050, that point in time when greenhouse gases go down mm-hmm. on a year basis? And I think it's really important that we name the goal and we say we're going to mitigate climate change. What does that mean? Mitigate means reduce the pain. Well, you can't mitigate change anyway. That's impossible. I mean, even if you could, what is, you know, stabilize? There's no stability now, you know, of PPM. And we're actually, when you add methane and nitrous oxide, which is really from the food system, methane from the food system, mostly, not entirely, from coal and gas as well. Um, and um, HFCs, really, which are from the refrigeration system, which is food-related and air conditioning-related. But when you add those in a uh, uh, global warming potential, it's called the GWP, but of those molecules, uh, we're at 492 ppm and the highest in 20 million years. So from my point of view, I'm just like wide-eyed when people say we're going to curb <laughs> climate change i was in new york last month and i was walking on central park west you know and i go and i think please curb your dog curb your dog curb your dog <laughs> i said curb climate change what does that mean you know and so we're using these really weak wussy yeah. you know words <laughs> absolutely you know? And I said, we have to reverse it. Let's just, can we all get together? I mean, it's, it's duh, D-U-H, you know, it's like, come on, let's reverse yeah. it. No, and, I, I agree. And I've been scared to use that word. I, it's only been recently where I'm like, oh, but we can, we can reverse it. Yeah. And I mean, the more, the more unreasonable a goal is, 
the more possibilities <laughs> it gives rise to. I it's, love that. That's the law, you know. In other words, it's called a forcing function. And, and a forcing function is to set an unreasonable goal. If you have a reasonable goal, nothing, nothing really happens. No innovation happens because you say, well, we know how to do that, so we'll do it. Okay, that's a reasonable goal. Who wants a reasonable goal? Curving <laughs> We want an unreasonable goal, which is this reverse it before 2050. Okay, what do we do? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's really drawdown as opposed to, you know, uh, this idea that the, the, there's a kind of a sense of despair innate in, this, in the okay. projection of what's possible. Mm-hmm. And they haven't raised the bar. Science hasn't raised the bar. No, and that, I mean, again, that's what I've I've learned from you to really emphasize what's possible, where the hope is. And so, you know, <laughs> I know this is just like my love fest to you, but I'm so grateful for the work that you do because it it does it's inspiring. It makes us all feel more positive about this work and and really realize that we we can change what's happening. Um, m- m- my final question to you is kind of a rapid fire, uh, set of questions. There are three and I just want you to, you know, say the first thing that pops into your head when I ask you. Okay. So the first is what's your favorite book? Uh, the invention of nature. Nice. Who inspires you the most, Paul? Barry Lopez. Nice. Great. And what innovation are you most excited about right now? Electric neural networks. Amazing. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Very unexpected, but I should have known. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) So I, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Where can people find more information about drawdown? Uh, www.drawdown.org. Uh, is the way to access really all the information um, and more actually than this in the book. I mean, it doesn't have all the narratives, but it has all the research and the papers and the, mo- you know, the, the, what informed the models and it has all the solutions and uh, thumbnail descriptions and their impact and, and resources to reach other organizations and things like that. So drawdown.org is a, is a, is the way in. And then, you know, if you're if you're starving, you can send me a note and I'll send you a book. But you know, only people if should talking. buy it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great only book. Quit library or whatever. Have a reading club uh, and so forth. But uh, only if you're starving. Legitimately, you have to. You have to have. Has to be a food tank verified starvation. <laughs> And I'm sending you a free book, you know, like for sure. No question. <laughs> Don't underestimate our listeners. You might get a lot of those emails now. <laughs> well, that can be a diet. That's not, that's the difference. <laughs> uh, Paul, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Again, it's drawdown.org. If you want more information about Paul, you can go to his webpage, paulhawken.com. Thank you so much again, sir. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. And, and not, not just good luck, but thank you for what you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's just, like I say, I get so many emails and RSS feeds and so forth, and every time I open up yours, I go, yeah. And I was <laughs> makes me happy. I'm so happy. To, <laughs> that makes yeah. me so happy. Thanks so much, Paul. Okay. Take, Take care. care. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me.
You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com. Email me at danielle at foodtank.com and follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members, so join now and we'll see you there.